Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Unfortunately, this pandemic has become, in many respects, an equalizer. And uh, I think coming out of this, I think there'll be a greater sensitivity to what low-income families have to deal with each and every day. Hello and welcome to Desert Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This episode is about a national crisis. Sort of about the one you think, coronavirus, but more about one that predates it. America has a child poverty rate that is unique among peer nations. About one in six children, nearly 12 million children total, lived in poverty before the pandemic hit. One in six, just sit and think about that. Of every six children in the country, one were in poverty. That's about one in three black children. It's about the same for American Indian children, nearly one in four Hispanic children, and about one in 11 white children. It's a huge racial component here. This is a choice. It's a choice. Other countries impose different policies and they make different choices. And something that I think we're seeing over the course of the pandemic is one, a lot of middle-income or even upper-income families have been thrown into the same world of unstable, unreliable, or completely absent childcare that poor families are in all the time and have seen the way that is terrible for the children, has seen the way that makes it impossible for the adults to, to do work and to get ahead at work. If there is one silver lining coming out of this, I hope it is some sensitivity to this crisis. But but the other thing is that it wouldn't even be that expensive to change. It wouldn't be that expensive to change. There is nothing in American political life where there is a bigger difference between our rhetoric and our policy action than on children. Every politician from both both parties talks about how we need to have equal opportunity. Nobody thinks children are responsible for their own lot in life, and yet we allow this ongoing national stain and this horror in these children's lives to just go forward. It wouldn't be that expensive to fix. So as we are doing this series on how to remobilize the economy in partnership with the Omidyar Network. And you can check out more of it on Vox. Uh, it's called The Great Rebuild there. We're sort of looking at it through the mobilization and remobilization lens. And I'm interested here in how could we rebuild in a way that actually took seriously children's welfare? How could we rebuild an economy in the aftermath of COVID that was as good for children as we claim to be as a country? And my guest for it is somebody I've wanted to have her on forever. Um, she is my congresswoman, which is very exciting because she is awesome. Um, but Representative Barbara Lee from Oakland, uh, she's an amazing history herself, but was also, among other things, a single mother raising two children trying to go through school. And so it's no accident that in Congress, Lee is one of the leaders on thinking about children, thinking about child care, thinking about child poverty. A couple years back, she got put into law the need for the National Academy of Sciences or a mandate for them to produce a huge report on how to have child poverty over 10 years. And they did it. And you know what that report found? It is unbelievably achievable. Unbelievably achievable. 
So for more of the Great Rebuild series uh, in partnership with the Omidyar Network, you can visit box.com slash the-great-rebuild. Get all the podcasts in this series. Uh, coming in September, a special issue of our magazine, The Highlight. But for now, here is Representative Barbara Lee. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be with you. It's such a pleasure here to have you. As you're my local representative, so I feel like we're I'm having a real uh, like a like a local politics experience. Oh, that's great. Well, you know, it is the most progressive and enlightened congressional district in the country, the great 13th congressional district. So glad you're my constituent. The, the fighting 13th. Let me jump into this. In 2015, you commissioned uh, this big National Academies of Sciences report on child poverty. What, what led to you commissioning that report? Sure. Well, you know, uh, first of all, as a member of the Appropriations Committee, I do a lot of work on uh, child poverty. And also, I've been trying to get for years and years and years our Democratic caucus to really talk about fighting for the poor, for low-income people, as well as for the middle class. So um, fortunately, uh, Speaker Pelosi established a task force on poverty and opportunity. So this has just been part of the work that I've been doing over the years. And um, when you look at the poverty rates in America, uh, and especially with black and brown children, and when you look at the poverty rates just in my district, in California, in the golden state of California, they're off the scale. And so we wanted to look at, uh, have the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine to conduct a study on how to cut child poverty in half in the next 10 years. Uh, we should be able to eliminate it but we could only get to cutting it in half. And so uh, the highlights from the study are very important because it's a roadmap for legislative and funding priorities for um, the House of Representatives and some state, state and local um, measures that it, it addresses also. So paint the, the picture for me before we get into the policy measures. What does child poverty look like in America? And, and and not maybe just child poverty, but also just p- child policy. How do we differ from peer nations? Okay, when you look at child poverty, it's already uh, a shameful. It, it, it increased from 13.6% to 21%. But when you look at uh, childhood poverty, and I'm going to use California as an example, 28.6% of African-American children live below the poverty line. 26.3% of American Indian Native Americans live below the poverty line. 24.4% of AAPI children and 24.2% of Latinx children live below the poverty line. This is outrageous. In the entire country, you're looking at 31% of American Indian uh, Native Americans living below the poverty line, children. of African-American children, 23% of Latinx children, and 11% of AAPI children. Now, these are statistics from 2018, which shows that over 12 million children are living and were living in poverty. And of course, now because of COVID-19, the numbers are even worse. And and what are the numbers for non-Hispanic white children? The numbers are higher. Okay, the percentages are lower. In terms of the uh, numbers, I believe it's more like probably 8 to 10 percent, but I'd have to verify that um, also. But the numbers are still high across the board, but it's the percentages of poverty that, the, uh, stuck, that we looked at in terms of the disproportionate rates of childhood poverty. And one of the things that is always striking to me when looking at this is our rates of child poverty across the board are double or triple the rates of child poverty we see in most European countries. And we're richer than most of those countries on a per capita basis. So is the kind of child poverty we see in America, is that simply a policy choice we are making through an action? Policy choices, yes. Uh, but also it, it's systemic. You have um, economic inequality that's uh, just uh, part of the DNA of America, as well as uh, systemic racism. And so uh, with white children, uh, you know, you've got many, many uh, low-income poor children living in many parts of the country, such as in West Virginia. And then you have uh, percentages of of, uh, black and brown children uh, whose families have to deal with systemic racism each and every day. And so when when you look at the wage gap, 
you know, black and brown families as opposed to white families, when you look at the wealth gap, when you look at the data around housing, when you look at uh, the healthcare um, demographics, you can look across the board. You have social determinants of healthcare where children who live below the poverty line uh, get sicker earlier. Uh, and, and so it's a vicious cycle. And so economic inequality and racial uh, inequality, systemic racism really contributes to the huge numbers of um, children living below the poverty line in America. Well, what's the effect on a child of growing up in poverty? Well, a child growing up in poverty, and, and I can tell you, first of all, you have uh, health care issues. And I have to refer to myself. I lived... Um, you know, on public assistance for about four years, raising two small children when I got a divorce and um, as a student in college. And it was really hard. I couldn't, um, first of all, afford childcare. So I had to take my children to class with me, you know, and they have to do their own homework. And so the stress alone uh, with regard to um, what happens with children uh, going to school maybe with not um, enough food to eat. So we have to have school breakfast and lunch programs because so many children, that's their only meal. Uh, and, and so when you look at the healthcare, nutrition, when you look at uh, substandard housing, when you look at many low-income people live uh, in polluted areas where there's not clean, clean water, clean air, toxic pollutant dump sites, toxins in the, in the atmosphere, uh, when you look at um, the entire um, life of a child whose family makes barely minimum wage and then access to SNAP and Section 8 vouchers are, are difficult to come by because of this administration, you see this, this cycle of poverty where um, families uh, have a difficult time, even those working two and three jobs, to move themselves out of poverty. And of course, the children with the school system larger class sizes, fewer teachers. It's, I always almost want to say a pandemic upon a pandemic as it relates to the poverty pandemic for children living in America. One of the parts of the report that I found really striking was that it identified these two mechanisms through which growing up in poverty can affect children. The, the first one, which I think is intuitive to people, we, you, you just mentioned it a couple of times, is investment, right? Not enough healthcare resources, sometimes not enough food, um, not a stimulating environment, not as much supportive childcare, and on and on. But the other one is stress, this wear and tear of environmental stressors, of fear, of instability, of being evicted, like you see in, in, in Matthew Desmond's book, that changes children's cognitive development. Can you talk a bit about that dimension of it? Yeah, and you know, my background is clinical social work. So by profession, I'm a psychotherapist. And I really understand how that weighs, how, how stress weighs on uh, children as a result of these social determinants. When you look at trauma, for example, many children who live in low-income communities, uh, especially in black and brown communities, are traumatized by gun violence, constantly hitting the ground, hitting the floor, constantly trying to figure out how to, how to move around so that they're not shot. When you look at uh, the trauma around uh, police misconduct, and, and I certainly and still have to talk to my grandchildren, my sons have to talk to our grandchildren, um, his children, about what to do uh, in case you, uh, a police officer encounter, encounters you and, and you uh, need to protect yourself and know the appropriate behavior. Well, that's stressful uh, and, and it's traumatizing. And so trauma leads to stress which leads to acting out. I mean, some, some young people uh, are having a very difficult time. You see the high rates of suicide with young, um, especially the young African-American uh, teenagers now, boys especially. When you look at the, um, the fact that young people in grammar school now um, have diabetes, and, the, and so if they don't have adequate health care, they don't have their insulin, they don't have their diabetic medication, which just compounds the, the problems that they, that they have in, in terms of just living. And so you have the health impacts of, of poverty, uh, and, yet, and you also have the mental health trauma that uh, is associated with, with um, life, uh, the environmental factors. And, and it's, a, it's a moral disgrace that uh, we don't look out for our children and that we don't address the environmental factors and the social determinants of their lives, because you have to do that 
to make sure that children don't get stressed out or have breakdowns or end up uh, getting shot or end up in juvenile hall or end up hanging out where the police might encounter them that could lead to some some terrible outcomes. So it let me tell you, in America, children living in this country, for the most part, if you're not white, middle income or upper income, you really have a hard time. <laughs> You really have a hard time, and then you you have to deal with living in close quarters because the cost of living in some communities and cost of housing is so high. I mean, no child should have to live like this, and so that's why we want to make sure we follow some of the recommendations from this um, report so that we can start addressing this in a holistic and in an intersectional manner, which we have to do if we're going to lift children out of poverty. Uh, and just to add one thing to that before we get into some of those solutions, um, just one of the studies in this I found most striking was in uh, PLOS1, which is a, a scientific journal called Family Poverty Effects Rate of Human Infant Brain Growth. And you can actually measure in gray matter cells, which is a particular cell in children's brains is very important for, for information processing and behavior regulation. When you look at kids in low, medium, and high socioeconomic status families, their gray matter starts the same and changes over time because what you're living under forces your brain to develop in different ways. I mean, we are literally pushing children's brains into different directions when you make them fight for survival um, and fear for, for, for what tomorrow will bring. Um, it's unbelievably heartbreaking. It is because these physiological changes really uh, determine a child's future. And it, if you if this occurs, what happens to you when you grow up? What happens to you in terms of quality of life? What kind of job are you going to be able to get? What kind of skill set will you have? What kind of uh, higher education or vocational training will benefit you to make a, a decent wage and standard of living? So yeah, it, it it's very it, it is immoral. It is quite disgraceful. It always strikes me as making such a hash of ideas of personal responsibility and just desserts, because the things that when somebody is 17 or 18 or 23, we're very happy to blame them for, right? Did you get good grades? You know, did you drop out of school? What, you know, did you come in every day at the right time to that job? Like, I've done a bunch of those things, but if I had had my brain develop in a different way because I grew up in a house with a bunch of lead in it, I very well may not have. And the idea that like I should get a prize um, because my uh, environment was so conducive to healthy growth um, and other people should be punished for growing up in, in another one, it always strikes me as very strange. Like In American politics, you hear it all the time in Congress um, among your colleagues. You'll always hear, especially Republicans, say, I don't believe in equality of outcomes. I believe in equality of opportunity. But actually making equality of opportunity real is so unbelievably um, hard and so far from where we are that it, it becomes cynical. Yeah, look at the young people in Flint. I mean, just an example, there's so many communities mm -hmm. around the country that, that have poison in their water, lead in their schools and their homes. It's a disgrace. It is really um, a health hazard and it's deadly. You know, uh, kids should not have to live under these circumstances, not able to get clean water or, uh, you know, take a bath have to use bottled water or have to boil their water. Uh, I, come on, what kind of life is that in, in America, the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world? It's shameful, it's disgraceful, and everyone who has a conscience should stand up and, and say no more. We're gonna deal with child poverty uh, in a comprehensive way so that we can begin to turn this around. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off borough.com slash box. What would our social policy look like 
if we truly invested in kids? Like what 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 is the future we want to get all the way to here? Our policy, first of all, I think would um, say that every family should be guaranteed a universal income. We should have a floor. No one should have to live below the poverty line. And we certainly have enough resources in this country to guarantee a uni- universal income. Second, we should have universal preschool for every child. We should make it affordable or free. Three, we should make sure that um, food security is what it should be in terms of either increasing uh, SNAP benefits or making some type of, of a strategy that incorporates uh, addressing food deserts where families can't get to the grocery stores and, and just make sure that uh, food is easily accessible, healthy and nutritious food. Uh, next, we have to have, uh, and I support Medicare for all, universal um, affordable health care. Uh, I think single payer would be a heck of a lot more comprehensive in terms of addressing uh, health care for children. Child care workers, we need to uh, make sure that our child care workers are trained and that they have benefits uh, and are unionized. And um, especially during this pandemic, we have to make sure that they have access to the help needs that they have. And so I think we know how to do this. Tax credits, the child care tax credit, it's a good idea to give low-income families the same access to care without the financial burden. So we know how to do this, uh, but we have to start with, I think, economic equality. And, and, it, you can, and we have to uh, dismantle systemic racism because you see the disproportionate rates of black and brown children living below the poverty line. And, and that's where we should start, valuing the, the dignity of all human beings and setting up policies that provide for a basic standard of living, which we do not do in this country. One of the things that's striking to me about that list is that if that sounds ambitious to you and, and, and you're listening, it's worth noting that we already do a huge amount of that for seniors. There is a universal health care program. There is in Social Security something that looks a lot like a, a universal basic income for seniors. Um, the people who work with seniors, particularly through Medicare, are very, very highly trained. We have this much more social democratic system for, for seniors, which we should, but we somehow have not extended almost any of that to children. Um, or for that matter, often to parents of children, Medicaid for a while, um, or Medicaid has done work with particularly single mothers and, and, and young families, but even making that more universal is recent and incomplete. Why do you think it is that there's been so much more success extending this kind of policy to, to America's elderly and not to American children where that investment is both cheaper and has a lot longer in somebody's life to shape them and, and to shape their their successes? Well, yes, and I think we need to do more for seniors because we still haven't totally stepped up to what we need to do uh, in the twilight of one's life. And I think our seniors deserve a heck of a lot more, but we do have Medicare and Social Security, but even those programs are in jeopardy. And again, it's the political leadership, i.e. now Donald Trump, that really uh, are trying to make uh, it even more difficult for seniors. And so I think we have to talk about values, the values of, of valuing human life and human dignity, regardless of how old you are. And children, um, the Children's Defense Fund and other organizations have been very active lobbyists for children, but I don't see the type of money being put into lobbying for legislation that directly would lift children out of poverty that uh, I have seen over the years when it came to our our senior citizens. And thank goodness they have an active lobby in Washington, D.C. through AARP and other senior groups. But again, we need to value uh, human dignity and human life. And, uh, you know, some of these uh, right-wing Republicans are so anti-choice. They want to make sure that women don't have the full range of reproductive choices that include uh, access to abortion care but yet they won't vote to take care of our young people once they're born. So it's a real political struggle. It's a political problem, but I think it all has to do with uh, valuing uh, human life and valuing human dignity. And for some reason, um, you know, there's some, some of those who just don't think children uh, deserve what they deserve at the, at the beginning of their lives so that they can move forward and uh, be the t- productive uh, human beings and, and live healthy 
lives and and take care of themselves and their families and and enjoy uh, being an American and living in this country. And so many are denied that opportunity. So, so that's the, the the big picture vision. Tell me what the the report recommended that would cut child poverty in half in ten years. First of all, let me just say how much the report showed us that it costs between eight hundred million to one point one trillion. Okay, uh, due to an increase in crime, diminished health outcomes, and lower earnings. Now, imagine if we cut poverty in half, that eight hundred to a trillion dollars we could do. Uh, also, we should increase the earned income tax credit so that uh, more families can get a refund. Uh, we recommend a 40% increase because uh, so many families need that to pay their bills for their uh, utilities, and it's a decent refund that you get a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, same with the low-income child tax credit. It gives low-income families access to care without the financial burden because you get this tax credit at, at a very with very minimal income. And um, we've got to mitigate the wage gap as it relates to communities of color and raise the minimum wage to, well, really to a living wage. Also, there's several bills like um, right now that we're working on, uh, the rental eviction moratorium, for example, in the midst of uh, COVID-19, we've got to have a ban, and this wasn't in the uh, report, but we've got to have a ban on evictions. And that would, of course, end after six months after the declaration, um, the emergency declaration has ended. But more children are falling into poverty now. And so we need to make sure that, that we address housing because if we don't, more and more children will fall into poverty. Also, we, of course, invest in, um, and we want more investment in uh, food stamps, public assistance. Uh, safety net because most um, families don't want to rely on public assistance, but when they have difficulties just surviving, then we should say, yes, our government, which is what happened when I needed my government's help, the taxpayer support, is going to be there for you. And so we need to make sure that we increase um, access, and the report mentioned SNAP benefits, and of course, um, health care for, for our children. And, you know, again, it's, it's an economic issue, and this is a racist, racial issue. Uh, universal preschool, I mentioned earlier. And I think Vice President Biden has a $775 billion plan to um, mobilize the economy around caregiving, which is uh, a lot of caregiving for our children. Head Start, you know, my former district director was a graduate of Head Start. Well, every year the, the Republicans try to cut it, but we, of course, as Democrats, increase it because the Head Start program has worked. So the um, report you know, indicates that we should increase resources for um, Head Start and Section 8 vouchers. And uh, again, boosting uh, the minimum wage, I think it was like $10.25. an hour, it should be minimum. I think ten twenty five is still too low. But even a boost from, you know, where it is now to 1025 is, is something, but it's not significant enough, again, personally, to think that uh, families can uh, lift their, themselves out of poverty and, and their children out of poverty. So we, we've got to get to the $15 uh, minimum wage, but then we have to move toward a living wage. And a living wage in some areas is $30, $40 an hour. You know, so we have to look at uh, poverty, how we... Um, reevaluate the formula for determining um, the poverty rates and the indices as it relates to poverty. So the report goes into quite a few um, recommendations, but I think what we did was we went around the country. We went to um, Texas, we visited uh, Wisconsin and other communities to look at some of the best practices and some of the programs that were working. Uh, I remember one and and you have to address uh, the formerly incarcerated individuals and families because there's currently a um, restriction on Pell Grants and SNAP eligibility for formerly incarcerated um, returning citizens. And we need to uh, lift those bans so that they too can take care of their families as they move back in after they've done their time. And we did talk to many people um, who did receive a second chance through uh, a barbershop that we went to in Wisconsin and, and how they were lifting themselves out of poverty 
into the middle class by learning how to become barbers and having a barber shop, which uh, was organized by uh, former inmates. So there are many, many legs to this, but um, we've got to have uh, childcare and we've got to have income. We've got to address economic inequality. And I think the report uh, indicates that those are the best ways to do that. And the child tax credit and the EI- increase in the EITC. Yeah. And to, to just draw two things you were saying there, um, you'd mentioned that they're finding that child poverty costs America about $800 billion to $1.1 trillion every year in increased crime, worsened health, lower earnings. And that's certainly an underestimate given what they can and can't measure. And none of these plans cost $800 billion to $1.1 trillion a year. So like every researcher will tell you investing in, in, in children is a bargain. But one of the things the report does talk about, and one of the impediments to doing this kind of social policy well in America has been, in a very racialized way, Congress has tended to make these programs really onerous. They put work requirements on them. They make them humiliating to apply for. And something the report really emphasizes is that these should be unconditional transfers, that you want this money to reach the adults so it reaches the children. And if you make it hard for the adults to get it, the children are the ones who suffer. So could you talk a bit about that, about the way in which politically here, the punitive way we treat and judge and racialized way we treat and judge adults in American social policy has worsened child poverty? Well, when you uh, put work requirements on an adult as it relates to eligibility, just as an example for SNAP benefits, first of all, 60%, I believe it's 60% of people who are eligible for uh, SNAP benefits uh, are working, first of all. Secondly, the economy dictates what jobs and what industries are available. And we have not invested in job training and many, many people, especially black and brown people, have not found jobs under this Trump administration. And so if you can't find a job, if you're doing everything you can do, and most people uh, on uh, who are eligible for these benefits are looking for a job. And so it's not you know, what this administration paints as these are lazy people. These are people who want to work. Uh, and for whatever reason, they haven't been able to to get a good paying job. And so they should be eligible to be able to take care of their family and not have these onerous work requirements placed on them. Uh, eligibility requirements, uh, and again, going back to the formerly incarcerated individuals, these people get out of prison with, what, $200, and yet they're not eligible to go back to school with Pell Grants or SNAP benefits. And um, it's extremely um, onerous. And so what happens is children are the ultimate ones in a family who get hurt the most because they won't have enough to eat because their parents have been required to do what may or may not be possible. And that's, uh, you know, meet the eligibility requirements for, for work. And certainly, and currently in this pandemic, when so many people have been laid off and, and so many jobs have gone away, and we've done this in our legislation in the Appropriations Committee, to get rid of these work requirements because it says to people that we don't believe you deserve to eat and to sleep and to live a decent life. And it's very, and again, it's very dehumanizing also to, for people to have to uh, scrape like this in America. And so these requirements need to go, if you ask me. One of the policies report emphasizes that people may not be as familiar with is a, a child allowance, which is almost a good, like the simplest way to put it is a universal basic income for kids. And they say that a $2,700 a year child allowance would single-handedly cut child poverty by a third. Like that's a big effect. Um, and it's something that a lot of European countries have. Canada has a child allowance. Could you talk a bit about that as a, as a policy option? Yeah, and that's a good policy option because we, if you have a child allowance of 2700 a year, and then if you have basic guaranteed income, and this is not a, a quote, socialist concept, but this is a guaranteed paycheck, uh, you know, when you're unemployed, with combined with the child allowance, then you can maybe come from underwater and move forward. But as long as you're spinning your wheels, uh, it's not going to work. And when you have a, a child allowance such as this, then you have the resources to help you pay uh, for childcare or help you pay some of the your utility bills, or you can buy more food. I mean, just again, this is just the basics. The twenty seven hundred is not all that much, uh, but again, you you 
find that uh, the cost benefit analysis of that is you would end up reducing the amount of, of taxpayer dollars that go for uh, the social safety net. So it makes a heck of a lot of sense for me. And I, I think we're going to have to get to that point in this country. I, I really believe that. And, um, you know, it's going to be a political battle because, you know, they're going to call us all kinds of names. But who cares? We've got to take care of our children and, and our families. One of the things that this is all going to come in context of in a new administration is this economy that has been functionally bombed out by COVID-19. So how would a big investment of kids help get adults back to work? Is this something that could help get the economy moving again, or is it something that is separate from that project? No, it would help get the economy going again, because first of all, you have the health and safety of our children and adults at risk, and you have to take that into consideration, and also the economic impacts. And, and so, for instance, childcare workers, essential workers especially, who are required to go to work, unfortunately, sometimes without the protective equipment that they need. First of all, they need help in caring for their children, but yet their children could be exposed uh, if, if the government, quite frankly, doesn't make sure that those health protocols at the child care centers have the type of health protocols and, and are equipped to, to make sure the children stay healthy. So we have to invest in uh, child care centers and in the individuals who own these child care centers because they're going under. And so you have a group of essential workers who need uh, child care. Child care centers are going under because they don't have the children, and yet uh, we can't help the child care centers uh, become compliant so that the parents can safely leave their children and that the child care operators can safely take care of the children. So it, does, it just doesn't make any sense what's taking place. And so you end up with even a deeper dive into poverty because so many more children now are falling into the ranks of the poor because their parents uh, have been uh, impacted by the pandemic. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. One of the things that I think coronavirus has done, although I'm not sure it's always stated this way, is give a lot of people with more wealth and resources an idea of what it is like to be a working parent without wealth and resources, what it's like to try to juggle not having childcare for your kids, but having a job, not having a reliable way to um, make sure those two things are separated, not have reliable care because you can't always get it, not be able to lean on family who maybe you, you already had. And I wonder if there's not some kind of solidarity that could come out of this, because I think a lot of people are seeing that when you don't have the ability to um, make sure your children are cared for, your ability to work, your ability to move ahead at work, your ability to be productive, all those things that we end up patting ourselves on the back for doing as we, you know, if we're lucky enough to be moving up in the economy, like that really depends on childcare. And the fact that so many people do not have the capacity to rely on that, that's happened to almost everybody during the pandemic. But it often strikes me that what's happening to so many during the pandemic is simply what normal life is like for a lot of people outside the pandemic. Unfortunately, this pandemic has become, in many respects, like, like you uh, summarized, an equalizer. And uh, I think coming out of this, I think there'll be a, a greater sensitivity to what low-income families have to deal with each and every day. And I think that this gives us an opportunity to form broader political coalitions 
uh, and you know, they talk about suburban white housewives or suburban white mothers or single moms who haven't had to deal with this because they've had access to opportunity and good paying jobs. Well, now, you know, we need to work with them to make sure they understand uh, this is how it is <laughs> for us all of the time. And I think that sensitivity is there. But also added to that, though, so many um, kids who are not in school uh, for the right reasons don't have access to broadband. And a lot of, uh, you know, people who uh, had jobs, if they did not lose their jobs, they've got access to broadband and can telecommute. And so uh, a lot of people are beginning to see the disparities in tech as it relates to access to technology with low-income children, because there is no way, if you don't have access to broadband, that you can do online classes. And there is no way, if you don't have uh, access to broadband, that you can uh, keep a job that requires this. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it gives us, unfortunately, it's taken so much death and, and pain to uh, help people understand the condition of others. And, and I think it does present an opportunity to, to build a stronger coalition around eliminating childhood poverty. And, and should this also be a reminder in a way that investing in kids is also investing in adults, that taking care of children is also taking care of adults? I think that's a part of this conversation that often gets lost. Sure, because you invest in kids, uh, you're in, you're helping parents uh, make sure that they are able to go to, to go to work without a lot of worry. <laughs> They're able to come home and their children uh, have been in school and they've learned something and they, yes, will need help with their homework, but it won't be as difficult because they've had a, a good day at, at school. Uh, and you, you don't have to worry about your child being safe. You don't have to, again, going back to gun violence. You know, making sure the guns are taken off the streets. You don't have to worry about, um, you know, kids being uh, shot at school if we had uh, better uh, gun control laws. And and so, yeah, taking care of children relieves a lot of the stress and strain um, on parents. Again, referring to my personal experience, it was difficult as can be trying to figure out how I could um, study, go to classes. I was on work study active as a community worker with the Black Panther Party and uh, take care of my children and, and all of that going on at one time. And had I had money, you know, I could have had more uh, childcare where it would have feel, relieved me from some of the pressure. Uh, but we may do, <laughs> and, and they're phenomenal young men. But uh, so many, um, especially so many single moms don't have that network and that support system in place to be able to juggle. And it, it creates more uh, stress uh, and more trauma, really, for the family. We, we have a tendency in, in American politics to lionize stories like yours, um, to say, well, look, um, Congressman Barbara Lee, she came up through all that. So it's, just, it's, it's pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I remember President George W. Bush talking about somebody who was working, I think it was three jobs, and saying, oh, what a, what a great American story. Um, what do we miss when we do that? If, if you were able to come through that and become a, a member of Congress, um, why why is any action here needed at all? No way. Uh, first of all, nobody should have to go through what I went through. And my whole life has been dedicated to fighting to remove the barriers so people don't have to go through what I went through. It, it's hell. And you do not want your friends and your family members and your country to go through this. And so uh, it's by the grace of God, <laughs> period, <laughs> that I was able to make it. Uh, and it, it took a lot of stuff and a lot of trauma associated with it. And and so uh, there's no way you pull, could bully yourself up by your bootstraps in this country if you don't have any boots. And this country has got to strengthen its safety net and, and a foundation so that women and men can move forward. Right now, there are too many barriers. And I know that. And so you can't tell me that uh, women especially don't try to break through these barriers, but it's systemic. The, the barriers are structural, they're systemic. And again, I, as I look back, I don't even know how I did it. <laughs> and <laughs> I have no clue. And I, all I know is my whole life is about trying to make sure that other, others don't have to go through what I went through. We're talking a couple of days after 
Vice President Biden named Senator Kamala Harris to be his vice president. You were an early endorser of Senator Harris. She's from Oakland, um, where you represent. She's a prosecutor in the or district attorney. I'm sorry in this area. Um, I know you got static when you endorsed her from from some progressives. Tell me a bit about the 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 Harris. You know what 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 should people who did not um, come of political age in, in the area that she did know about her? Well, first, I am pleased. Let me tell you, I am so excited and happy that uh, Vice President Biden selected um, her as his running mate with uh, as vice president because they're a great partnership. And uh, she's someone who I know is is prepared. She's smart. She connects with people. She knows the struggles of, of everyday folks. And um, she's a, a for real uh, woman. She also brings forth a, a, a really good view of what progressive politics uh, brings and why we need to have a, a, at least a minimum wage of $15 an hour or address climate change or address criminal justice reform and racial justice. Her experience has, has been phenomenal. And uh, so for her to be in the situation room and in the cabinet room, uh, I feel uh, comfortable to know that she's going to be that voice that's going to fight to break down some of the structures in this country that are based on racism and economic inequality. She's a phenomenal woman. Yes, I was really proud to be, I think I was the first member of Congress to endorse Kamala when she ran for the presidency. And she uh, was born in Oakland. She is a, a woman who, uh, again, uh, crosses, and you know, we talk about intersectionality, you know, South Asian, African American. She's a woman who um, knows, has been the attorney general of, of the largest state in the country. She um, has management skills as well as, as a vision for where this country needs to go. And so I'm hoping that everyone will uh, vote for the ticket. And as a progressive and as a former co-chair of the Progressive Caucus and former co-chair of the Black, former chair of the Black Caucus, uh, I'm just saying that this is her moment and this is the moment for us to uh, begin to dismantle uh, the old structures and systems in this country and move toward transformation. And I know that uh, Kamala uh, wants to do that as vice president. So I'm excited. I'm really happy. And we just have to do the work between now and November and make sure that um, the, re the Trump regime uh, is cleared out of that White House because we can't afford another four years. One, one other uh, question on this. Something that's been striking to me is that there's been uh, a lot of pushback on Harris from, from folks on the left, um, even though she is one of the two or three most liberal voting records in the Senate. Um, you're somebody who's long been a hero to progressives. Um, what do you think you see about her that, that some of them don't? Or why do you think there is this disconnect between um, the way sort of I think Harris views herself, the way um, she's the way her voting record looks, but also the uh, discomfort a lot of people on the left have with her? Well, I've been a progressive all my life. Uh, I co-chair the Progressive Caucus, chair the Congressional Black Caucus, work for the greatest progressive warrior who was the father of coalition politics, Ron Dellums, come from a progressive district. But I always have known and have fought the issue of race with the progressives. Uh, sometimes race is not seen as a factor, uh, a progressive factor. And so I'm not sure if, if it's an issue of, of uh, not seeing a black woman as being progressive enough or what the, the issues are, because, you know, nobody's perfect. No one's 100 percent. But when you look at her voting record, when you look at what she stands for, when you look at how she relates to people and understands where this country needs to go, for low-income people, poor people, the middle class. You know, she's um, a person who's going to take, who has and will take on these fights. So I'm not sure what this is. Uh, it, it's in many ways for me disappointing, but I'm going to keep working. I'm going to be working very hard to make sure they get elected. And I'm going to talk to progressives and try to understand at a deeper level what it is about this uh, African-American woman that uh, concerns them so deeply. And I'm sure, though, that they at least understand that, that she wants to protect our democracy and that she will protect our democracy and that she will prosecute the heck out of this administration during the campaign and that with their help, she will win. And I'm, I'm just hoping we can unify with um, progressives and with um, the Biden-Harris ticket to win and to win big because 
you know, I'm a staunch progressive and I will always be a progressive because the progressive agenda is an agenda that the entire country is embracing. And when you break down what progressive politics really means, when you're talking about $15 an hour, climate change, when you're talking about addressing, uh, taking on the big banks, the oil companies, I mean, Kamala Harris has done all this. And so, you know, we've got to really understand um, what a progressive agenda means for the country. And I do believe that um, she reflects positions based on our progressive policies and progressive agenda. I know we're running out of time here. So let me uh, end by asking you the question we always used to end the show, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to others? Right now, um, Zelena Williams, The End of White Politics, please read that. Tiffany Woods, Say It Loud. <laughs> and of course, Brian C. Stevenson, Just Mercy. You know, I'm working on my Truth, Racial Healing and Recon uh, Transformation Commission legislation, H.R. 100, and Reparations, H.R. 40. And, uh, you know, we've got to get in context, the historical, uh, the historical context for systemic racism. And reading these books really lay out the, the issues from 401 years ago from when the first enslaved people were brought to America's shores and why you see, for example, and know that black and brown uh, men and women are killed disproportionately by, the, by police officers, uh, the manifestation of systemic racism. And so I think these books kind of show that trajectory, that link from 401 years ago uh, till today, when you look at the disproportionate rates of African-Americans dying from COVID-19, for example, people don't make the connection to 401 years ago in the Middle Passage. So I think these books kind of set the tone for why systemic racism uh, has got to be dismantled and disrupted. And so I would encourage everyone to read them. They're great books. Congresswoman Barbara Lee, thank you very much. Okay, nice talking with you. And thank you all. Thank you to Congresswoman Lee for being here. Uh, again, you can get more from this series at vox.com slash the dash great dash rebuild. Um, thank you to the Omidyar Network for being our partners here. Thank you to Roger Karma for awesome research on this episode, to Jeffrey Gell for producing and editing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.